The following message is a presentation from Grace Baptist Church in Kettering, Ohio. So let's look at Revelation 2 and verse number 8, and let's look at the church of Smyrna. Smyrna tonight, as we look at these seven letters from Jesus Christ. Personal letters, wonderful letters. Verse number 8, the Bible says, And unto the angel, now let's do a little review. What's the angel here? So we're talking to the ministers, uh, those that are ministering in the, in, as representatives of the Lord among, the, among Christ's body. And so, and unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. Uh, by the way, none of us can say that, give that testimony. I can't say I'm first and last, and I cannot say that I was dead and 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 now alive except spiritually but physically he he was able to say this and and what an amazing statement of the lord verse number nine i know thy works and tribulation and poverty but thou art rich and i know the blasphemy of them which say they are jews and are not but are the synagogue of satan Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh, shall not be heard of the second death. Now, we've read those before a couple weeks ago uh, together as a church, but now we read this tonight and we want to study it. So let's, uh, let's ask God to bless our time in his word. Father, thank you for allowing us to gather together as your people, your body, uh, singing praises to you. And Lord, thank you for the spirit of unity that you've given us. And thank you for your Holy Spirit, uh, Lord, who you said would be what brings us unity and what enables us to have peace with each other. And so, Lord, we just are really grateful that you are working in our church and that you are ministering to our hearts and that your spirit is having control in our lives, and we want you to continue to do that. Lord, even tonight as we look at this, this church that is a really great example for us, thank you for putting it in your word. And Thank you for the challenge that it is going to give us tonight in our own lives. And I pray that of all the churches in, this, in these letters that you wrote, I pray that of all the churches, Lord, you'd help us at Grace Baptist Church to be like Smyrna in our faithfulness to you. So help us, Lord, we pray, and give, uh, give illumination by your spirit to your word and to our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Smyrna was a wealthy city. Uh, it had some similarities to Ephesus. Ephesus really is a city that, you know, dwells in ruins. Uh, Smyrna didn't so much. It continues on, and even to this day, uh, it's uh, Turkish city, Izmir, and uh, there's probably 200,000 or so citizens there in that city. There's some of the ruins, the old columns there that you see there, you can see in the, in the city, but uh, Smyrna was about 35 miles north of Ephesus, and uh, was, a, again, a seaport town, and so it made it a very crucial town. It was, interestingly enough, it was one of the seven postal districts 
of, um, for, the, uh, for Rome, and so it was on a circular path. It was an important city in that, in that way. Paul and his companions probably in Acts 19 um, were the ones that introduced Christianity and the, the way of Christ to, uh, to the town of Smyrna. Uh, Smyrna was a town that was very proud of the fact that it was loyal to Rome. Some of these cities, Ephesus and, 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 and uh, Smyrna, would have kind of vied for, uh, vied for who was the most loyal to Rome. But Smyrna actually built a temple to this, uh, to this uh, deified personification of Rome in, in the name of Roma. So they had this temple uh, that was focused on basically worshiping Rome as a city and as a personified person, it's very interesting. I think we have a, a picture there of, of, that, um, of that statue that was uh, left, uh, left in ruins uh, there in uh, the Temple of Roma. Kind of interesting. So if you can get in your mind, Smyrna was a place that was just deeply entrenched in, in Roman, uh, the Roman cult. Uh, the members uh, there of the Church of Smyrna would have been persecuted probably because they refused to compromise and declare that Caesar was Lord. And so Smyrna was an important center of the Roman cult. And people were expected to follow suit. Anyone that refused uh, uh, to uh, say that Caesar was Lord would likely be cut out of the, the, the working guilds. And so that immediately meant uh, deep poverty, loss of work. And so we, we see some of that type of stuff that goes on in different countries around the world. And you think, well, uh, is this kind of uh, you know, something to our time? No, it was happening back there in this city of Smyrna. There was a large Jewish community in that, in that city. And so what was interesting, Jew, the Jewish people or the Jewish uh, uh, following or their religion, it was not in contradiction to Rome. Uh, Rome accepted the, the traditional Jewish worship or, or, or the, the Jewish way, uh, the way that the Pharisees followed, the religious leaders followed, and so on. So they followed a lot of that. Um, did I lose Mike? Whatever. So they followed a lot of that. And, and the fact is that um, they weren't, uh, the, Jewish, the Jewish faith, not following the Messiah, but the Jewish faith was not in contradiction to, um, to the, Roman, the Roman government. They didn't feel like they had to patronize the Roman government and, and, and constantly be bowing to them. They were at peace with one another. So I want us just to kind of catch the, the picture. There are still world religions today that are at peace with world governments. But that's what was going on in that day. But what, caught, what was the problem at, at that point is, is now the Christians were pinched in between the, um, the religiosity of the Jewish faith and the cult of the Roman government. Uh, 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 bowing to uh, Caesar as Lord. So Smyrna was a very interesting city, to say the least. The, the Christians would have been slandered. They would have been persecuted severely. Uh, as an important seaport town, they were, very, they were very connected to Rome. And if you bring that map back up, you can see how they would have been more connected towards Rome, which would be to your, uh, to your uh, left there, uh, uh, you, you see it there uh, over at Italy and uh, on north of Italy. They would have been more connected to, um, to Rome than they were to, um, to Greece and others. They were very focused on their allegiance to Rome. Now, throughout the Roman period, Smyrna excelled in medicine, in science. Uh, it was home to the guilds. It wasn't just uh, where guilds happened, but these, these working uh, organizations, it was home to the guilds of the, um, the basket fishermen, tanners, silversmiths. 
goldsmiths, etc. And what is very interesting, membership inside these working guilds required that the, um, the, the members would sacrifice to the pagan gods and, and to Caesar and so on and declare uh, their allegiance there. So legitimately, if you did not get involved in that, your livelihood in the city of Smyrna, your livelihood in that area was gone. And that's what I really wanted to, to uh, just grab as we've looked at some of this history here. This, this was an intense, an intense place to be. Um, just imagine yourself in a situation where you could not make money to put food on your table unless you bowed to a pagan deity. I can't imagine that. Uh, but the, the fact is that's happening in different places in the world, and it was happening in Smyrna. So the environment in which the body of Christ was being built, that Christ was building his church as he has promised, was this environment, one of either this choice, one of either I compromise and I, I say that Caesar is Lord, or I stay faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. I acknowledge him as Lord, and I lose livelihood. I exist in poverty. My family goes without. I do not have a way of living and per, um, providing for myself. And I, I must trust in the grace of God and, and, and obviously go without a lot. And so as you think about this, this church is not like Ephesus that was working and working along and, 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 and losing its first love. This church was vibrant. And it was seeking the Lord, it was serving the Lord, but it was doing so at the expense of their livelihood and, ex uh, and, and through much sacrifice. They were really a faithful church. They had not compromised. And we'll see that as we go through the letter. They had not compromised at all. They continued to follow the Lord in this very, very hostile environment. Which gives us just an encouragement right off the bat, is no matter how hostile our world becomes towards Christianity, we have the testimony of a church that by God's grace stayed faithful to the Lord even when it meant their own persecution and death. And we'll see that. We're not just talking about persecution or getting kicked off of, uh, uh, you know, getting silenced or getting expelled. We're talking about death. We're talking about people losing their lives there in Smyrna because of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want us to see a few things as we address these letters, I want us to see what Jesus is to these churches, how he feels about these churches. And notice, first of all, in verse number eight, notice how Jesus Christ relates to his church. Don't you like relatable people? Uh, a person who can relate, understand the pain that you're going through, understand the situation that you're in. Jesus related to his church. I want you to think about that. And Jesus relates to you. Whatever you're um, facing this week, Jesus knows about your situation. The Bible says we have a, not a high priest that cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. Right? Right? Amen? He can be. He can be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. I want to make sure that you're still, you're still awake, okay? He can be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He's right there. Uh, that song that we sang, there's not a friend like the lowly Jesus. No, not one. I love how the chorus goes. Jesus knows all about our struggles. He will guide till the day is done. There's not a friend like the lowly Jesus. No, not one. He alone knows all that we're going through, and he knew that what they were going through, and that's very important to understand, and he related with them. And here's how he related. Look at verse number 8 again. Look at it with me. Every time Jesus comes to one of these churches, he announces something about himself. He announces to this church, he says, 
I'm the first and the last. He exposes himself or he relates himself to them and, and, and says, this is what I want you to know about me. And the reason I want you to know this about me is because it's particular, it's important to the situation that you're in right now. I want you to know I am the first and the last. There's no one else that is the first and last. I am the first and last. And what he was portraying to them about himself, relating to them about himself, was I am eternal. I am eternal. Earlier on in Revelation 1, we find that he says, I'm Alpha and Omega. I am A to Z. I am everything in between. And what Jesus uh, says to them as a persecuted church, he says, I am the bookends of human history. That's me. I'm never going away. I've always existed. I am here. And that's when we sang the song, Yesterday, Today, Forever, the, the phrase in the song, all may change, but Jesus never. What a reassurance to a church that is going through persecution and is facing all sorts of uncertainty when Jesus Christ says to them, I'm always the same. I am eternal. I've always existed, Romans eleven thirty six. for of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. So be it. Colossians 1 and verse number 16, for by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or power, all things were created by him and for him. Verse 17, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. By him all things consist. That is our same great Jesus that exists right now holding all things together. There's nothing going on in our world right now that he is not aware of. He is not, he is not allowing to happen. He is in control because he is the self-existent one. I am the first and I am the last. Linsky says it this way, the one at the beginning and at the end of history from whom, all, from whom and for whom all history exists, who controls all of it for the sake of of his church. That is our Jesus. And that is what he exposes himself to them saying, listen, I want you to know I'm the first and last. And that ought to bring you great comfort as a persecuted church. Just imagine it, a, a father saying to a child, child, I'm here. In the dark of night, the storm is going. Hey, child, I'm here and I'm not going anywhere. I've always been here. I've never left anyone else. In fact, that's exactly what Jesus told us when he left to go back to, to heaven and he would leave his Holy Spirit with us. He said, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. And he gave that to us to help us to be confident in our mission, uh, in his mission and fulfilling his mission. So he says to them, I'm first and last. I'm always going to be here. I'm not leaving. I'm going to be with you right through your persecution, right up to death's door. I will be there with you. They were facing death. And do you know what else he says? I was dead and I am alive. I already faced the death that you're facing. And I went through it and I was triumphant over it. And so will you. Uh, Revelation 2 and verse 8. And was, was dead and is alive. Jesus uses two historical uh, historical. Uh, tenses in the, in the verb to, to basically say these are facts. We can go back to a point in time where these things actually happened. I was dead. At Calvary, I died. I didn't just swoon. I did not just faint. I died. Bodily, 
Jesus died. And what an amazing truth that it is. The, the Lord of glory, the creator of all the universe, he says, I died. There is, there is a place that this actually happened. He experienced what was looming in front of them, and he says, and I'm now alive. You can go back to the, uh, to the tomb, the garden tomb, and you can find the place where Jesus rose bodily from the grave. And he says this to his, to his body, to his church. Listen, what you're facing right now, I already went through. Isn't that great? What you're facing, I already went through. I conquered it. And his death and life means my salvation is secured. My resurrection is for sure. That's what Paul told um, the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, verse number 20. He said, listen, but now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, how did that happen? As by one man and sin entered into the world, that was Adam, so by one man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. He says, listen, I died and I am alive and this means you will conquer it too. I am this to you. I want you to know I'm telling you this about, I, 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 can, I can relate to what you're going through. I can relate to the, the, the torment. Remember, Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane sweating great drops of blood. Why? Because it wasn't easy for Christ to go through the death of the cross. The Bible tells us that he endured the death of the cross. He, with patience, he endured it. It was a difficult thing. Just because he was God does not mean it was not painful. It was excruciating. Yet he says to this church, I went through it, and you can go through it too. Aren't you thankful that Jesus will always be all that you need for every need? All that you need for every need. Whatever you face this week, whatever opposition you face, whatever opposition we together face in the future, Jesus will be all that we need for every need. And that's what he's telling this church at Smyrna. Listen, I, I am all that you need. I can satisfy you. I will be there. My grace will be uh, sufficient. I'll continue to pray for you. Hebrews 7 and verse number 25. He ever liveth to make intercession. That's our Jesus. And that's what he was to them. And I want us to get the heart of Christ tonight as he talks to his body. His body, who the Bible says in Ephesians 5 and verse number 29, he loves it and he cherishes it and he nourishes it. And he's talking to his body and saying, listen, I know what you're going through. I can relate. And I want you to know that you're not going through something I've not gone through before. And I want you to know there, there's nothing you're going to go through that I haven't seen. I, I'm here. You're not going to go through it without my presence. I'm, I'm here. I, no one's going to outlast me. I, I'm here for you. And no matter what we face, our Savior can relate with us. What a blessed Savior we serve. What a blessed Savior you get to sing about on the way to work tomorrow morning. What a blessed Savior. And he continues to nurture this church with what he says in verses 9 through 10, he reassures them. He reassures them. Uh, yes, he relates. I understand what you're going through. But he reassures them. He says, I know, look at verse number 9, I know thy works. I know thy works. It's the same word that he used when he was talking to Ephesus. He says, I know, I, I understand. You can put it this way. Jesus says to them, I know all that is happening. 
You do not have to bring me up to speed. No one needs to sit me down in a conference room and brief me on what's going on in Smyrna. I know what is happening there. I, I, I have full knowledge of what's going on there. I perceive it. I understand all the, the, the battles be, unseen battles between good and evil. I see it all. I, I see what you're going through. I see the, the torment of, of soul, the pain, the anguish. I see it all in your life. I know thy works. I know it. I perceive it. I know your service, he says, your works, your labor that you're doing on my behalf. I see it. I see when you labor for me and everyone uh, opposes you and they, they hurt you and they say nasty things against you. I see that and I care. I see your tribulation. I see your affliction. I told you that affliction would come. This was a part of following me as a, a, as a, a, as a servant of Christ and a disciple of Christ. Uh, but I see it. Isn't it a blessing to know that Jesus is not blind to the pain and the struggle of his followers? Even now tonight as we think of people in North Korea and Iran and, and, and in China as we've watched some um, videos from China and and just all the, the craziness, the, the, uh, the severe persecution that they're under, the, the dark winter that they're under right now for their faith. And just to think that God knows every one of their names. He knows every pastor who's been arrested. He knows every church that's been shut down. Well, the Chinese government might, might put their cameras every which way to, to identify. Jesus knows every single faithful believer walking in and out of those churches. And he knows what they're going through. He knows the, the uh, strain of mind as they think, if I go, I'm going to be on camera and I might lose my job on Monday if I go to church and assemble with the church on Sunday. He sees it all. But do you know what he says about them? I see your poverty. Now remember, this was an affluent, wealthy city. So there was money flowing as long as you're willing to compromise. As long as you're willing to give up your faith. The word for poverty here is, is the word for abject poverty. Absolutely having nothing. It's what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 6 and verse number 10. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich. As having nothing, and yet possessing all things. So do you notice what, what Jesus says to you, to these, these Smyrnans? He says, listen, I see your abject poverty and then he puts in parentheses, but actually you're really rich. Now, all oh, that we'd have the right value system. There's a, a course in our, our hymnal with eternity's values in view. Lord, help me to live with eternity's values in view. And you know what? Christ was reminding them, you might have nothing in this world. You might not have anything in your cupboards. You might not have that refrigerator. You might not have that home that you would, uh, you would like to have, but you have everything in Christ. And, and frankly, as the Bible says in Ephesians, that we, are, we, are, we sit with Jesus Christ in the heavenlies, high above all things. Our position in Christ is so amazing, and he is noting to them, you might be a pauper here on earth, but you're the child of the king up in heaven. What a blessed Savior we serve. And he says, I see this poverty. I, I see this physical strain that you're under but I want you to know you're spiritually rich in me. We have everything we need in Jesus Christ. Everything. And we need to remind ourselves often of that. And especially as living as wealthy Americans, sometimes we can think, well, if I don't have this want or this want, boy, I don't have anything or I can kind of get down in the dumps about it. No, we have everything in Christ. 
He also says that I see your, the blasphemy that's been lodged against you. And as we saw this morning, this blasphemy means the slander, the reviling. And again, Jesus told his, his, his disciples, you're not going to be more than me. You're not going to be treated better than, than I was here on earth. And he says, I see this. And so Jesus heard everything that was said against them. Now notice, he said it was lodged against them by the Jewish people who said they were Jews, but they were not. They were of the synagogue of Satan. Why? They were followers of Satan. They were child, uh, children of, of, of hell, of Satan, because they rejected the Son of God. And so this religious structure from which the Messiah came through the, through the Jewish people, through the, the nation of Israel, this religious structure had become an enemy, had become an enemy of the followers of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And they're the ones stirring up violence against these, uh, against these Christians and slandering them in, in, in the earshot of these, Roman, of these Roman governors. And we'll see this a little bit later, but literally these, these Jewish people that said, hey, we're Jews, and God says, no, 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 you're not. You're actually followers of Satan. He's, these are the ones that are making life really, really difficult on you in front of the Roman people. I don't know, if I lived in that, in that city, I'd wonder, how in the world, Lord, do you want me to be a Christian in this place? Like, how am I supposed to thrive? How am I supposed to, to advance and grow and, and allow you to work in my life? Uh, how am I supposed to be a light with confidence? Can you put yourself in their shoes for a little bit? This was not an easy situation to be in, but what a reassurance it was to hear from the Savior in a real letter written to a real church, just like you and I. I know your tears. I know your pain. I know your heartache. I know your suffering. I see it all. I am aware of what's going on. Even faithful believers in the midst of hostility and persecution can begin to doubt. But I want you to notice what he says. He says, I don't want you to fear. I don't want you to be fretting. I don't want you to be in doubt. I don't want you to be struggling along. Look at verse number 10. Fear none of those things. Oh, <laughs> really? I can't, I can't go to work tomorrow because I said I don't, I don't bow to Caesar. I, I said I, I can't go to work tomorrow because I don't, I don't bow to Mother Earth. Friends, if we think that at some point there is not going to be a deity put over us that we are asked about to, we are, have another thing coming. They were asked about to this Roman deity. What they, 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 they said, Caesar is God. And, and we have things that are being exalted right now in our nation that are going to be exalted over us. If you don't bow to this, if you don't subscribe to this, this doctrine, this ideology, you don't have anything. And so he says, don't fear these things. And don't fear those things which thou shalt suffer. You not, not might suffer, but thou shalt suffer. Don't fear these things. In other words, Jesus was saying, stop fearing. Isn't that amazing? The very response that we naturally have towards opposition and pain and persecution, every single one of us has a shudder of pain in our heart when we think of persecution coming to America. And we want to fear. And what Jesus was telling this church in the middle of it, he's saying, stop fearing. 
stop fearing. Now remember, that's all based on his presence. It's all based on who he's already related to us, that he is. I am first and the last. By the way, being first and the last means that he has the last word. Isn't that great? I'm glad he has the last word. But the fact is, he says, I, 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 you do not need to fear. I am here. I am first and the last. I, I was dead and I am alive. You do not need to fear this. In fact, fear none of this. You do not have a right. I'm, I'm telling you as my follower, stop fearing any of this that you're going to suffer. Stop fearing the, 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 the harm that might come to you, the emotional pain that might come to you, for it is given, the Bible says. It is given unto us in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. Don't fear it. Don't fear it. You don't all go out and say, oh, yeah, bring it on. No, don't get cocky like that. But when it comes, don't fear it. And don't fear prison. He, say, he said there in verse number 10, they're going to lock you up. But I want you to notice in your Bibles, who does the locking up? Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? You realize, we sometimes, we look, well, the, the persecutors are people. No, Satan is behind the opposition of the church. Satan is behind it. That's why we've been saying over and over and over again that this is a war between good and evil. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness in high places. Satan was the one incarcerating, and Jesus knew that this was going on. He was aware of this, and he says, don't fear it. Don't fear it when they bring you up to trial. Because they're going to bring you up to the trial and you're going to have some of these religious Jews that are going to stand up and say, hey, I heard him say this and he didn't bow to Caesar and they're going to use, they're going to use your, your refusal to bow to Caesar against you even though they don't, they don't say the same thing. They're going to slander you. They're going to blaspheme your name in the trials. They're going to bring false witness against you just like they did in the city of Antioch of Pisidia this morning in our, in our message. These trials were going to be slanderous. In fact, we're going to look at one a little bit later, but Polycarp, one of the pastors there in that city, had a, a disastrous trial before one of the Roman governors and, uh, and, and lost his life. Uh, Jesus says, don't fear this. And by the way, Jesus also told us in the book of Matthew that when we are delivered up to the council and put in the trials, that we're not to to take thought for what we're going to say in those moments, but that Jesus in those very moments will give us the exact words that we need to say to challenge, to challenge the persecutors. Uh, and, and he gives us the word in that moment. Aren't you thankful for that? He, that's a promise still for us today. By the way, when you, when you go out into the work world and you face opposition, rest in the promise of the Holy Spirit uh, to give you words to say and answer to those that, that challenge and are hostile. But the Bible says here that Jesus also told him not to fear the tribulation, the distress, the affliction, the, the anguish. Don't fear it. Don't be fretting about it. That's only possible as the Holy Spirit has given us power. We cannot muster up this boldness. I do not have enough boldness to stand against a, a government. Think about this. They were against the Roman government, the world power of that day. By following Jesus, they were against the Roman government. And Jesus says, don't fear. Don't fear. 
pretty amazing that our Lord can tell us that when the reason we can heed that is because he's more powerful than it all, isn't he? Now, notice he says, you're going to suffer this tribulation 10 days. And there's a little bit of debate about what, what exactly that means, whether that's metaphorical or, or, or whatnot, um, uh, whether it was referring to uh, a certain amount of time or a, a certain number of persecutions that the Roman government would bring against them. Um, most come down to, to believing in, in conjunction with other times that, that 10 is used in Scripture. Jesus does use some metaphorical things in these letters that it, it, it speaks to a, a limited period of time. Um, I'm not going to be dogmatic on that, but, but, but thinking about that, a limited period of time that there's going to be some persecution, but it's going to be for a limited time. Uh, and I am also encouraged by that just tonight, just knowing that this day will soon be or. There will be a day when we're done with troubles and trials, and we're resting in the homeland Beyond, uh, beyond the Jordan, and what a great day that that is going to be. But understand what Jesus is doing here is one man said, he is fortifying the church for what is yet to come. Everything is in the hands of the first and the last, who therefore says, never be afraid. He was dead and became alive. He can carry us through death to life and promises to do so. That is what is being said here this is our Lord speaking to his church, his body. He says, these things have I spoken unto you, that ye might, in me you might have peace. In the world you shall have what? Tribulation. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So he relates to the church. He tells them, this is who I want you to know uh, that I am to you. As you go through this problem, I want you to know that this is who I am to you. He, he reassures them, I'm here, I know what's happening, I, 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 I don't want you to fear, because I am here with you. But he rewards his church in verse number 10, be thou faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Be faithful. He would reward his church with the crown of life. This is a very interesting crown. Uh, there are uh, multiple crowns that are mentioned in Scripture, and maybe at some point we'll, we'll study those together. Uh, if you get antsy, study it on your own. Look up the crowns that are mentioned in Scripture that God will reward us with by the way that we'll give back to him when we see him. Because we didn't really do the earning. It was his Spirit's power that gave us the strength uh, to be faithful. But he says, be faithful. Just as I am faithful, as I was faithful to endure the death of the cross, and I did not give up, and I'm now seated at the right hand of the Father, I want you to be faithful as well. And he would give the crown of life, or maybe you've heard it called the martyr's crown. The martyr's crown. Those that were faithful and lost their life, gave their life for the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I will give the crown of life. The crown of life is uh, the winner's crown. It's referenced in James chapter, uh, chapter 2 and verse number 12. But it's a winner's crown. What's interesting is here in, in Smyrna, as with a lot of the, uh, uh, those cities in that, in that area, they were very focused on uh, athletics, on games, and uh, kind of like our Olympics. And so they would have understood very, very quickly what this meant. This was the win uh, winner's crown. This was a, the, the, the crown that was given to those that were faithful and endured and got all the way through. And so Smyrna was a, a key participant in the games, so this promise would be especially pertinent to them. He says, I'll give the crown of life to the one that, that overcomes, to the one that, that is faithful to the end, that is faithful to death. James 1 and verse number 12, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. 
He's patient. He, he, he suffers long through it. For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Love him more than anything else. Give that crown. I uh, will never forget um, the testimony of Brother Charles Wesco in this regard. If you've read uh, his book, Lady, or the biography about his life, uh, written by his wife that we gave you out at Mother's Day, uh, you remember a part of that book uh, takes a moment to talk about his love for the crowns in general that the Lord would give, but particularly the crown of life. Uh, six weeks before his death there in Cameroon, uh, on uh, an evening they were gathered around, uh, the, the book uh, reads, on Samuel's sixth birthday in the middle of that, uh, of that September, our family was having a quiet little birthday party at our house. We sat uh, around the table watching Samuel open his presents. Charles began discussing one of his favorite subjects with the children, the different crowns that are promised to the believer in Scripture. He loved to quiz the children on the name of the crowns and how they could be earned. That evening, the last one to be mentioned was the crown of life or the martyr's crown. I'll never forget listening to Charles talk about the crown which, with such desire, not a desire for death, but to be found worthy of receiving that crown and to cast it at his Savior's feet. He uh, even went so far to say that a shot onto the head would be the easiest, most um, painless way to earn it. I became very upset with him, as any wife would, uh, as he uh, 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 talked about wishing for the honor of receiving that crown. I told him I had to have chil uh, help uh, uh, raising the children, and so he couldn't die in that way. Uh, I'll never forget how he smiled at me and said happily, Oh, sweetie, I'll wait a while. Uh, there is so much that I want to do for the Lord in Cameroon. He did not know that, uh, that in some strange yet wonderful way, God would grant him his heart's desire less than six weeks later. The crown of life. Martyred for the faith. And there's many that have received that crown of life. Um, that's sobering. And Jesus was talking to a body just like you and I with people who were facing martyrdom for assembling and for refusing to bow to Caesar. Wow. And there are many around the world that still face that same, that same persecution. This crown would be received by those that were faithful through death. Just like our Savior was faithful through death, uh, the, this crown was promised to them, but it wasn't just the crown of life that was promised as a reward, but eternal life. Now, I want us to understand what Jesus was not saying. Uh, he was not saying to them, uh, if, if, you, if you die, then you'll get eternal life. If you're martyred, then you'll get eternal life. He's just saying, I want to accentuate the fact that when you die as a believer, you have eternal life waiting for you. You have eternal glory waiting for you. And so what Jesus emphasizes here is eternal security or the fact that we have a grand, wonderful, glorious life in the presence of our Savior awaiting for us on the other side of death. So he's saying, even if you have to go through this, even if you have to die like a Stephen, even if you have to die like a Paul, just understand, on the other side, there, I'm waiting for you. I, my promise is absolutely for sure. And notice what he says in verse number 11. He says, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt by the second death. 
Now, in order to understand the importance of that statement, let's break it apart. He says the overcomer, the, the person that remains faithful through martyrdom. The believer that remains faithful. He says, I want you to know, I want you to know my promise is certain before you. John 10 and verse 28, I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Never. I can just imagine even the most hardy Christian in that, in that town as they would face martyrdom in, in the last moments or in the, the days leading up to that, just wondering, will, will the promise come true? And Jesus, as, as the great shepherd, as the, the kind and tender guide of the church, he's saying, I want you to know it will absolutely come true. I will be waiting on the other side for you. And he proved that when he stood at the, the threshold of heaven and welcomed Stephen into the gates. What an amazing Savior we have. And he's just saying, listen, I want you to know I'll be there, and you won't even be phased if you can get it that way. You won't even be phased by the second death. Now, we all have physical death to go through, unfortunately, but Jesus took the sting out of it, didn't he? Because we have the hope of eternal life. But what he's referring to in the second death is eternal death in hell. Uh, you can find that in Revelation 20, uh, 20 and verse 14, and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Those that are, those names are not written in the Lamb's book of life, they are subject to the second death. They will be hurt by the second death. They will feel all the torment of the second death. But he says to these facing martyrdom for the faith, for following Jesus Christ, you will not even be faced by it. You will not be wounded by it. You will not be injured by it. Just know that when you, <laughs> there's that song, uh, just think of stepping uh, offshore and on shore and finding it heaven, of uh, breathing new air and finding the celestial, you know that song? What a wonderful song it is. And that's exactly what he's saying to them. Listen, I'll be waiting for you on the other side. I'll be there. You'll not be hurt by the second death. We do not need to fear. Why? Because Jesus is the keeper of our soul. Now, Jesus told his disciples, you have right to fear the person who can, can kill you and put you in hell. Um, but you don't, you don't need to fear. And remember the words that he says in Luke 12 and verse number 4. He says, I, I say unto you, my friends, be not afraid of them that kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. You catch that? No more that they can do. But I will forewarn you whom ye shall fear, fear him which after he hath killed hath the power to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. For us as believers, the persecutors can kill the body, but after that they can do nothing else. But that's not so with the unbeliever. And he says, listen, I don't want you to be fearing this. Don't fear this. On the other side, there is great glory. You, you will be in my presence forever. E.H. Hamilton, a Presbyterian missionary to China, he wrote a poem that many of you have probably heard before to commemorate the martyrdom of J.W. Vinson, who died in 1931. On October uh, 1931, uh, Vinson visited some believers some 18 miles from the mission statement. The area was overwhelmed by a group of 600 bandits. Vincent was taken hostage along with 150 others, offered his freedom if he would write a letter to his commanding officer of the, uh, of the government troops telling them to withdraw. Vincent declined unless the hostages, all the hostages, would be released. So the abandoned chief refused, and Vincent was shot and killed. 
His decapitated body was later found by uh, another missionary and given a proper um, burial. But as his captors prepared to execute Vincent, waving a gun in front of his face, they asked him, are you afraid? Are you afraid? A girl who witnessed this scene witnessed him uh, saying, no, if you shoot, I will go straight to heaven. If you shoot, I will go straight to heaven, to which E.H. Hamilton wrote this poem. I wonder if you remember it. Afraid of what? To feel the Spirit's glad release, to pass from pain to perfect peace, the strife and strain of life to cease. Afraid of that? Afraid of what? Afraid to see the Savior's face, to hear his welcome, and to trace the glory gleam from the wounds of grace. Afraid of that? Afraid of what? A flash, a crash, a pierced heart, brief darkness, light. Oh, heavens, art. A wound of his counterpart. Afraid of that? Afraid of what? To enter heaven's rest and yet to serve the master blessed from service good to service best. Afraid of that? Afraid of what? To to by death what life could not baptize with blood a stony plot till souls shall blossom from that spot. Afraid of that? You can't, you can't cause a believer to fear when a believer's heart is realizing just on the other side of death is heaven. That's what Jesus is telling these, these folks. Listen, you'll wake up with me. You'll be with me. Absent from this letter is any any sign, even a small amount of rebuke from our, our, our Lord. The head of the church who sees all things, who knows all things, saw nothing in this church to rebuke them for, and it was the fires of persecution, the pressures and the hostilities of daily life living in that Roman culture that was anti-God and, and pro-cult and pro-Roman and pro-the Jewish, uh, Jewish rejection and all these other things. It was that the fires of persecution that purified this church. Individually, corporately, they were pure in the eyes of Christ. Even as they lived in an affluent culture, the allurements of that culture hadn't captured their heart. They truly, in the spirit of 1 John chapter 5, they did not love the world nor the things that are in the world. They loved Jesus and they were faithful to him. Living in 65 to 156 AD, there was a man, a pastor, by the name of Polycarp. He lived in this city. Remember, the, the book of Revelation was written in about the 90s AD, so... Well, the book of Revelation was being written, this pastor, Polycarp, we don't see mentioned in Scripture, but is written in history, uh, existed and lived and, and pastored people there in that city. I don't know what age he uh, began to do that, but I have no doubt that he was very, very close and acquainted with uh, the words, the words of, of Christ. So, Polycarp... Um, was on trial before the provincial governor. The governor likely didn't know all the 
ins and outs of the Christian faith and practice, but he knew this, that it drew people away from giving to the gods, including the emperor, their dues, and that Christ and this following that Christ had was a threat, was a rival to the Roman, Roman government and the allegiance to her emperors. It couldn't be tolerated in his view, and in that city especially, it couldn't be tolerated because they, they, were, they had allegiance to Rome, and they, they were faithful as allies to Rome. And so the, the governor there gave Polycarp an ultimatum, and he said this, Swear by Caesar's fortune, change your mind, say away with the atheists. The local police chief urged the man, the old man at this point, he was very old, uh, he said this, what harm is it to say Caesar is Lord and to offer a sacrifice? But Polycarp could not bring himself to turning on Jesus Christ and denouncing him. To which he said this, for 86 years I have served him and he has wronged me in no way. How, how then can I revile my king who rescued me? And there was a pastor who died for his faith. I don't know how many others in that city died, were martyrs, but this, this was the kind of people that Jesus was talking to. And I don't know about you, I don't, I don't desire any sort of persecution, but I will say I do desire that I, that we would be faithful to the Lord like Smyrna was. That in our daily living, that we would be faithful like they were in their daily living. That at the, at the slightest hint of having to denounce Jesus Christ and to exalt anything that is worldly or any God of this world, that we'd say, no, I'll be faithful. I will not compromise. I'll be faithful to him. No matter if other believers are around, no matter who else may know about it or not, he'll know about it, so I will be faithful to him. As we consider our prayer tonight and how the Lord would have us to respond to this, I'd encourage you uh, to ask the Lord to give you the strength to be faithful like these believers were. Would you bow with me in prayer and perhaps you would say something along these lines to the Lord tonight. Father, I want to be faithful to you like the believers at Smyrna. As an American, I feel like my easy lifestyle has weakened my resolve to endure through persecution and even the threat of persecution causes me to shrink back at times would you strengthen me father would you give me boldness to be faithful to your name no matter what it costs I don't know how big the church of Smyrna was you notice that is absent from all these letters. Jesus does not tell us their attendance. He says he had a body there. He had the body of Christ. And I can imagine a body just like ours gathering together 
different times throughout the week on the Lord's Day who is faithful. Quiet at that moment here, would you just ask the Lord, Lord, help me to be faithful. No matter what what comes my way, no matter what it costs, would you help me to be faithful? I read those words of Polycarp. For 86 years, I've served him. He's wronged me in no way. How then can I revile my king who's rescued me? determined by God's grace to be remain faithful is now ahead of the conflict. May we never boast that we'll be faithful. May we continue in the grace of God. Lord, by your grace, I want to be faithful no matter what it costs. Father, tonight, You see our hearts. Lord, I don't know what it would have been like to live in a city like Smyrna. I don't have a personal experience, Lord, what it's like to live in China or Iran or North Korea or even having a copy of your word is is an offense. Lord, I don't know what it's like to live in those places. And should you allow that type of persecution to come to us in our lifetime, I pray that we'd be faithful. But Lord, I I pray that we'd be faithful in, in all of the small areas. While we yet have freedom to proclaim your name and to lift your voice, Lord, it might mean we lose some, uh, we lose some notoriety or we are looked on shamefully. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be faithful no matter what it costs us, no matter what it costs us in our family and among our friends and in our workplace. Help us to be faithful and not compromise. Lord, give us the kindness that you have towards the lost. Give us the the grace that you have uh, had in daily living and you would have us to have in this world that we live in. Give us, give us, give us that grace, that graceful spirit to help us to be faithful. I pray should you tarry, I pray that the Grace Baptist Church would still be here and faithfully assembling, faithfully communicating your word in our community for many, many years to come. Until you come, would you help us to be faithful? Lord, I pray that that it would never be said of our our church, Lord, that we compromised, that we chose a simpler, easier path. Help us to be faithful. And we ask this prayer, Lord, seriously, soberly, and we will give you the glory for every bit of grace that you give us in this day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thank you for listening today. For more information about Grace Baptist Church, please visit our website at gracebaptistofkettering.org. And remember, you are always welcome at Grace Baptist Church.